the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. In James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, it says this, Each one, uh, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James starts with the concept, the principle of being tempted, which leads us down this horrible path. Temptation, as we know, is dangerous. And what makes it all the more dangerous is that temptation is all around us. Temptation is within us. What James is saying is that the source of temptation is not outside of us, but within us. It is our own sin nature. It is our own lusts, he says, that leads us to sin and bring forth, brings forth death. When you take this all together, the potential for sin is constant. It is all the time. It is everywhere. It is pervasive. One of the keys to avoiding sin is to go a step or two or five back and avoid temptation in the first place. Sure, we want to know what to do when we're in a serious car accident. We're prepared for that. But don't we live the majority of our lives driving and walking in a such a way to avoid the car accident in the first place? In other words, we want to do this in regards to sin. We want to have the same mentality. Don't just know how to repent of it or deal with the sin when you're actually practicing it. Learn how to avoid the temptation in the first place. If you picture it as circles and the sin is the middle circle of the target, the further outer circle you can go, the further you will be away from sin, but also from temptation. And this is exactly what we're going to talk about this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, as we continue our study of 1 Peter and come to the very end of the book. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. If you would turn there with me, it says this. Peter writes, in his concluding thoughts, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And based on what James says and the terminology he uses, this morning I want to tell you, don't get carried away. And I want to give you a plan for temptation from these verses in 1 Peter 5. And they'll be unpacked in four keys to remember to avoid temptation. To avoid sin, yes. But further back, earlier on in the timeline of your thought life, of, of your practicing, let's avoid temptation. Four keys to remember to avoid temptation. The first key is the character. The character. This would be, by the way, your character. The character of the one who is trying to avoid temptation. And I find this in the beginning of verse 8, which Peter writes, commands us, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Be of sober spirit is a phrase that we saw already in First Peter in chapter 1, verse 13, and in chapter 4 and verse 7. Using the same word in the Greek and the English that we would use to speak of being physically sober, not being inebriated with alcohol or drugs, Peter speaks of our spiritual sobriety, our spiritual clarity. It simply means having a clear mind when it comes to issues at stake. It, it, it means being very, very aware of the fact that the enemy is near, that temptation is all around us. Being of sober spirit involves having an ordered and a balanced life. Again, not according to the world, but according to God, according to the Scriptures. And so, to be of sober spirit, we must discipline our minds and our bodies so we can resist 
the temptations, the enticements that are all around us, the enticements of the world. This is connected with having humility that we looked at last week. Because that which the world entices us with feeds our egos. It promises empowerment. It promises us control. And like the mind-clouding effect of alcohol, these allurements of the world cloud our judgment. They confuse us and they drive us to emotional passion. Similarly, Peter says, be on the alert. Wake up, he says. This word, this phrase in a military context would refer to a soldier on watch. You've seen it before in books and TV shows and cartoons depicted. Back 2,000 years ago, you would always need a soldier outside the city gates or on top of the city gates. This was the, before the time of radar and GPS. And you wouldn't want a sleepy soldier protecting the gates of your city or outside of your home. Wake up. And not just awake. Not just awake and on his phone or on his tablet or daydreaming about something. But be on the alert. Be watchful. Be aware of the dangers around you as well as knowing what the way out is should they come. Because the craftiness of the enemy and the subtle but pervasive nature of sin as well as the reality of spiritual warfare demand that we be vigilant. I'm not calling you to be some gung-ho soldier of Christ in the sense of you're going to go out to rebuke Satan and fix the world. I'm talking about your life. I'm talking about the temptations that face you every single day of your life. You want to go out and fight a spiritual battle with the world, let's deal with our own hearts first. Let's deal with the fact that your anger in that pursuit may even be sin in and of itself. And so we must understand the reality. Be of sober spirit. And with that, be alert. Know. Be on watch. Understand. Now again, these are both imperatives. In other words, they're both commands. And both are commands in the sense that they need to be heeded constantly. Not once in a while, but all the time. Awareness. Vigilance. Every second of every day. So it's not just when you think you're more prone to give in to temptation. It's all the time. It's not just when you're tired and on edge and you know, yeah, I know when I'm like this, I get angry, so I, want, I need to be you know, watchful right now, just today, because I didn't get enough sleep. It's not just when you're sitting in your car with your girl after a date. It's not just when you're surfing the web alone late at night. Those are times when you do need to be watchful and vigilant, but all the time as well. When you think there's no temptation, when you think things are going well, Because remember, we're not just talking about avoiding sin. We're talking about avoiding the temptation to sin. Part of being sober and alert is recognizing the hazards all around us. This may be a foreign concept to most of you, perhaps not some of you who have been in the military. I've had the privilege of serving on a mission field and and visiting places where I literally walked right by a literal minefield. War was over. We don't know where the mines are. We don't have the technology to get rid of those. This was in Kosovo after the Serbian uh, president attempted genocide over there. But imagine you were walking through a minefield and none of the mines were marked. You wouldn't let your guard down. You would listen for that click or that tripwire or whatever it may be. You would be watchful. You would be sweating. You would be scared. You would be on the alert. You would be of sober spirit. And we have to understand. And I don't, I don't want to give the impression that you should always live in fear of sin. We're going to talk about that in a second. But we need to be sober-minded, sober of sober spirit. We need to be on the alert as if, because we are, walking through a minefield of temptation all around us. You cannot, you cannot turn on the TV without seeing a temptation to lust, get angry, learn to be violent, whatever it may be. And really, a lot of this is, it's, it's cyclical, right? The more we struggle with sin, the more easily we'll be tempted. Right? Someone only, may only be tempted when they happen to, to see nudity in a TV or magazine or whatever it may be. Others may be tempted in the same way just by walking to work. 
because they see a, 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 a pretty coworker walk by. And so this all, the, 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 the importance of avoiding temptation is so we don't get into this place and where we're tempted all the time because our sin and our, we're not sober-minded, we're not alert, and there's so much sin and, and unrepented junk in our, in our minds that we're just sinning all the time because we're giving into temptation all the time. Last week we talked about how we are to accept our circumstances with humility before God in light of His sovereign care. And a lot of that had to do with accepting reality as opposed to being anxious about what, what could be, what could happen, rather than trusting the Lord and His sovereignty. And remember, in the context of the original readers of this letter, we're talking about per- persecution. They're being anxious because they're getting beaten, and they're anxious that they were going to get beaten again or killed or something worse. And we learned that humility is accepting especially in trials, God's sovereign plan and God's desires and God's care, humbly waiting on His timing to relieve you from the trial. That's very important. But when we are proud, when we are self-centered, when we're focusing only on what we want, whether it's materially or circumstantially, we are setting ourselves up for frustration, anger, and anxiety. And when these negative characteristics creep in, then we set up ourselves up for unclear and distracted thinking, and that's when we give in to temptation. You see the connection there? When we're only focused on what we want, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be worldly. And all of a sudden, your mind is clouded. Rather than focusing humbly on the sovereignty of God and the plan of God, which may be you're just going to scrape by and you're going to be considered, according to the government, under the poverty line. We're so focused on the money and the comfort and the happiness rather than joy and what we want the world to give us and, and why, you know, we, we want this relationship and we want this job and we want this amount of money and we want these people to, that's cloudy thinking and you're going to give in to temptation. Because what happens when someone comes and says, oh yeah, you can have all of that if you just do this. Work on Sundays, divorce your wife, don't take care of your kids, lie a little bit on your taxes, steal from, look at this, look at this loophole. Patients, over three years, you can amass a million dollars siphoning money from your, your, your company. No one knows, you're the only one watching that. And see that, you get, you get cloudy-headed. Well, yeah, God is sovereign, Why do these wicked people get so much money? Why are they so rich? Don't I get some? I'm a child of God. Don't I deserve? Don't I deserve? Cloudy thinking, might as well be drunk. You might as well be drunk. You are drunk. Right? We we talk about, we use that term in English, don't we? Drunk with whatever, drunk with his desires, drunk with his fine, you know, riches or whatever it is. It, it, It clouds our head. It keeps us from being alert. We are fine being alert about the next opening for promotion, the next opportunity to finally get a house, a down payment. But when it comes to sin, when it comes to honoring God through our lives, are you alert? Are you sober-minded? Or are you so distracted that sin just enters in, not even recognizing when temptation is actually temptation? And we are, reminded, we are reminded of sin and who the master of sin is in our next key to remember to avoid temptation, and that is the caution. The caution. Look at the rest of verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, we know that the greatest enemy of God is Satan. We know that this is not some sort of Halloween thing or really anything that's depicted in any horror movie. He is externally a beautiful being who has access to the throne of God in God's sovereignty. Okay, And I don't want you to think like, yeah, the devil, the devil, the devil. We know saying devil, sin, right? And we kind of get used to these terms. 
But you need to understand who our enemy is and how powerful and crafty he is, how dangerous he is. And Peter tries to convey this by comparing him to a a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. See, Peter cautions us about our enemy and also his aggressiveness. See, we know, because we know our eschatology, our, 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 our Bible talking about the end times, that he's the loser. That just makes him matter and more aggressive. The Greek word translated adversary is actually an old Greek word. It refers to a legal opponent, a legal adversary, right? Someone that you're, you're fighting against in a lawsuit. Often these people would be hostile toward you. Generally speaking, though, the word just speaks of an enemy, a true enemy. And again, even not speaking about the devil, we use this word flippantly these days, right? Oh, carbs are my enemy, right? Or that guy, that coworker is my enemy or whatever it is. But I, don't, I think most of us have never had a true enemy, like someone who generally wants to hurt us, to end our lives, someone who truly seeks for our destruction, our humiliation, and our downfall. I mean, you've had people do bad things at work and then something really bad and they come, I'm so sorry, I didn't know this would happen. I didn't know the manager would react this way. I, you know, I kind of played you, I wanted that, you know, I wanted that project, but I, I'm sorry, I didn't know it would be this bad. We've never had a true enemy who's like, I, I would have done worse if I could have, right? But on a spiritual level, we have one. That is the devil. The Greek word, as you know, is diabolos. It's a Greek version of the Hebrew word Satan, Satan, who is pictured here as a dangerous, roaring lion wandering around and seeking someone to devour. And the seriousness of this picture is epitomized in the word devour. It literally means drink down. It pictures a hungry beast swallowing its prey in one gulp. You've probably seen that, right? A lion just swallowing a whole part of an elk or an eagle just swallowing a rat hole, and you're like, that's terrifying and disgusting. That's the picture. And I want to clarify, because I think even as we think about this picture, there's a certain image you have. Understand that this was written 2,000 years ago, so Peter and his audience would never have seen lions in a zoo basking lazily on a rock. They would never have been to a circus where a trained animal, a trained lion was doing tricks. A guy was opening his mouth and putting his head in it and whipping it. What they would be familiar with would be the Roman amphitheater where lions literally tore apart human, living human beings. And the ferocity of the devil is pictured in that. But I also want to caution you that you don't be misled by over-applying this scene. One of the devil's tactics is to deceive. He doesn't just openly challenge you, but he uses sly and subtle means such as through cultural norms, public opinion, political views, and thus the temptation. I think we would be less prone to give in if he just showed up at our door, banging on the door, leaving a burn mark on the door, and he's got horns and a tail and a pitchfork. Want some money? No! Want sexual satisfaction? Uh Uh-uh. Because obviously, this guy is obviously trying to trick me, right? I mean, I can't even shake his hand without my my hand bursting into flames. That's not what he is. That's not what he does. He doesn't care if the world believes in him or not. I would venture the guess he's glad that people deny his existence. He's subtle. And that's the temptation. Pitchfork, horns, fire, shows up with a bag bag full of cash and an attractive prostitute or a gun. to. No one will know. Just shoot that guy. Kill him. No one will know. I promise. I can make that happen. Right? Sign right here on the dotted line like they do in the movies. You'd say, no way. No, he doesn't do that. He uses subtle, deceptive lies that tell you that God doesn't know what's best for you. He even uses the lie, hey, you're a Christian, you're forgiven, go ahead, do it, do it. God will forgive you. It is finished on the cross. He'll forgive you. Imagine that. The devil using a, God's grace as a means to tempt us. He even convinces us, maybe not us, but people, 
The culture has changed. The Bible's outdated. Don't believe that passage. This, yes, that, no. This, yes, that, no. Google it. Eh, it's all there. Devil's right. Culture's right. Society's right. Spins everything. Leads us to redefine sin. No, 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 no. That's not a sin issue. That's a political issue. That's a Trump and Hillary issue. Well, yeah, I know. It's a, yeah, I know what this, they say. I know what the Bible says. I know what science says. But women's rights, women's rights, women's rights. It's her body. Devil spinning, telling you that murder is a good thing because you're honoring that woman's body. We call it personality. We say that's just the way I'm wired. And again, even making us take advantage of the patience and grace of God. Spinning everything. Isn't this exactly what he did to Eve? And we see it right there. We know what God said. We know what Eve said. And we know what the serpent said. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And as you're turning there, let me tell you five words. Good, 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 good. Six, good to be accurate. Everything was good. Everything was good. And then this happened and changed the world forever. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it. It's not what God said. Or you will die. Verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, He doesn't want you to be like Him. But don't you want to be like Him? God doesn't want you to be happy. God doesn't want you to reach your full potential. We know the rest. I was trying to convey this, explain this to the boys as we just started reading through the Bible and starting in Genesis 1. You know, all of this, this simple act in listening to the deception of the serpent, of Satan, changed everything. It changed everything. We understand the gospel is because of that. Christ had to die because of that. But you know the whole world changed. Aiden, you know your brother wouldn't have this disease, wouldn't have a, a, a feeding tube in his stomach if it weren't for Adam and Eve. There'd be no cancer, there'd be no flu, there'd be no viruses, right? We'd still have to work the garden, but there would be no weeds, there'd be no whatever it is that's digging up my lawn, right? These critters that are ruining crops, there'd be none of that. All these natural disasters from earthquakes to floods to tsunamis, none of that. It was good. But they wanted something more. They believed the lies of the devil and they wanted something more and they destroyed spiritually and physically the world and its inhabitants forevermore. Right? Until Christ comes again. And instead of looking around, all she had to do was look around. She's focused on that serpent. All she had to look around and all that God gave her. But all Eve was focused on was what she wanted and what she wanted to hear. And the serpent knew exactly what she wanted to hear and said it. Do we need to fast forward 2,000 years to the San Francisco Bay Area? How many times have someone said something whether it's a false teacher or someone in the world or a non-Christian politician, and it's like, I know that's wrong, but man, that sounds good. Man, I want that. And to be clear, we're talking about the devil as your adversary prowling around. And that's the terminology that Peter uses. And I, I want to be clear that it's not Satan, the individual himself, that's attacking you. 
Right? He's not in your house, Satan. Because Satan, unlike God, is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere all the time like God can. So when we're talking about here, we're not talking about him as the person, like he's here right now. Really? You think he's here right now and not uh, at a bigger church or somewhere else? Right? If I were to guess, now I don't know, the scriptures don't say this. We, we do have indication that he's prowling around. We do have indication that there are times that God lets him into his presence, right, Job? But I would guess that he's spending his time in the capitals of nations. The, or, or probably more accurately, because he doesn't need to be there, <laughs> in the offices of powerful preachers and evangelists in their churches, in their elders' homes. But he is the one who, in God's sovereignty, and this is how it relates to us, commands the war against God and God's people. What are his main weapons in this war? This is very important. Okay? It's not fire. It's not even demons trying to, you know, indwell unbelievers, whatever it is. It's two things. It's the world and it's our own flesh. It is the world and it is our own flesh. Both of which are elsewhere in the New Testament listed with the devil. So it's biblical. So not only does he control the demonic world, but also governs the human fallen world. And this is why we need to be sober-minded and alert about what the world tells us. Ephesians 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air according to whom the whole unbelieving world walks. In God's sovereignty, he is allowed to control the world system. And you see how this is true and how the world tempts us to pursue things that separate us from God or as believers distract us from God. Self-reliance versus trust in God. Monetary wealth instead of heavenly riches. Control versus submission. Vocational success over family. Happiness rather than joy. Comfort over obedience. Fleshly satisfaction rather than godly discipline. And there's many more we could list. And this is how Satan attacks. He attacks through temptation to sin. But he, he attacks in these, these kind of big categories. Right? He attacks the biblical view of marriage. He attacks biblical philosophy, the biblical philosophies of Bible teaching churches. He attacks for the original readers here through persecution, hoping that will give, get them to give up on God. Maybe I get these non-Christian slave masters and non-Christian idol worshipers to beat a little more, hurt a little more, rape a little more often, these Christians. At the very beginning of the church, he's not a dummy. He knows if I could destroy the church right when it's just a few thousand people, a few hundred people, hey, this is why it's so important to have an alertness, a sobriety that is based on sound theology and trust in the Word of God. Trust in the Word of God. And when you doubt, He will hone in on that. As you may believe the Bible as a whole, but you may just disagree with one little part. That's like a crack in the wall of a dam. And He will hone in on that and push the waters and push the waters and take a little pick to it until what happens? The whole thing crumbles. On a side note, this is why we, this church and other like-minded churches, we fight adamantly for what seems like the most mundane, small things in Scripture. Why does this matter? Why, did, why is John Piper preaching on this? Why did John MacArthur write a book on this? This seems like an insignificant thing. Does anyone care? Because it's a crack. They don't find cracks, you know, to break our faith. They don't, find, they don't try to find a, make a crack in Jesus is God. They know they're not going to get anywhere with that. Jesus died for your sins. Pointless and try to attack that. They, they, they attack little things, right? And it's going to vary person to person, 
place to place. I think in, in this place, it's a lot of it has to do with finances, right? Nah, yeah, trust God, but, you know, He wants you to have a house. You could use it for ministry. You can have people over. Don't you want to have people over? Don't you want uh, visiting missionaries? Can't house visiting missionaries in that little apartment. You, you got to have more money, right? And we can pay on Sunday mornings, right? These little things, right? No, 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 no. You need to raise your family in a comfortable place. You are a provider. So get a nanny and both of you work. Because don't you understand what your child can do if you can afford all private schools? What a voice for God to have that kind of education. Little cracks. Little cracks to destroy the whole thing. When we talk about avoiding temptation, we're talking about not giving in to temptation, but also keeping ourselves from tempting situations. Understand that being tempted and giving into temptation are connected as one leads to another, but they are very distinct. One is sin and one isn't. Being tempted is not sin. Giving into temptation is sin. You want the best example of that? Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. That time it was by Satan himself, by the way. But he didn't give into temptation, he died sinless. He never sinned. In other words, facing temptation did not make him a sinner. But oh, we are so much weaker than Jesus Christ, aren't we? I hope no one said no to that. Yes, right? And so we want to be extra careful. We want to avoid tempting situations altogether. But the reality is that is not always possible, depending on our frame of mind or what we're struggling with. But this point helps, right? He's pictured as a prowling lion that you would avoid him at all costs. Yeah, I don't know if you've done this. I recommend it. That's not pastoral advice. It's just friend to friend, right? Sign up for these email and text alerts for your county. I get these Sam, Sam Hill County. They text me. Uh, they email me when there's traffic, when there's a burglary, when there's a fire, whatever it is, missing persons. And based on Sam Hill County, occasionally a mountain lion, right? Up usually closer to 92, 280. And this all, always the email says, look, if possible, avoid that area, right? Obviously, some people live there. They got to get home. But it's like, if you're planning to hike there today, maybe save your hike for another weekend, right? They say, avoid that area, the entire area, not just the trees, that little area, the, the one street, the one house where he was seen because he prowls around. He's going to move, Right? It doesn't say like, this is the exact house, avoid this block, but maybe go close to there and see it. It's really cool. Mountain lions are fascinating. Get close. Maybe you'll get a glimpse of it. Maybe you'll grab your child. That's amazing how they do that. Just one sweep and the child's in his mouth, right? No, they're like, stay away, miles and miles away because there's a mountain lion. But we do that with sin, temptation sometimes, don't we? We know we are to avoid a particular sin, but we don't take the extra measures to avoid the temptation of that sin. Like, well, going in a tempting situation, pray for me. Why don't you avoid that tempting situation? I think some of you would would probably be shocked, especially some of you who are older, would be shocked to know that I know many Christians who know. I am not to have sex with my girlfriend or boyfriend before we are married. And they try really hard not to give in to that temptation. They battle it. They get counseling for it. They make rules with their significant other about it. But they both really want to see New York or Europe, and so they travel together. (laughs) Sometimes sharing a room together. I'm not making this up. Well, she took the bed. I took the couch. Uh, was there a wall with a door and a hallway and a lock between? It's like, I warned them, I tell them, not a good idea. It's worth the extra money. In fact, probably if you're going to get married, wait, don't travel at all together. Uh, I know it's not the best idea, but uh, we really want to see this. Every one of those people have come to me afterwards and said, it's a bad idea. 
And I would say, I don't want to let your imaginations wander, but as far as it can go, that's what happened. To the point, and they repented, the point one couple I said, this happens again. I will not officiate your wedding. My boys will not be in your wedding, and I'm going to tell our entire church not to attend your wedding because you'll be in sin, continued sin when you get married. It's crazy, right? We, we put ourselves in tempting situations with sins that we know we're, we, we struggle with. We try so hard not to judge or get angry, right? It's like, I'm, I'm about to lose it. And instead of walking away, we walk too, and we keep asking questions. We keep poking the bear, right? I'm just curious. No, you're trying to feed your anger. You're f- trying to feed your judgmental attitude. Walk away from the situation. Don't ask more questions that you know you're only asking to feed your anger. Right? You know your finances. You know where your job is going. And you try so hard not to be discontent in where the Lord has put you. And yet, you keep searching those real estate websites and real estate listings. Why do you do that? Why are you feeding your discontentment? Trying to keep my mind pure and then you willingly pay money to go watch a rated R movie. We need to take one, two, a hundred steps back and avoid temptation in the first place. You've got to understand and be real. Part of being sober-minded and alert is understanding that you are not as strong as you think you are. And even if you are, still avoid temptation. What's, you know, why? Why go into a tempting situation if, even if you think you can overcome it? When I was a, a teacher in Albania as a missionary, we would hire Christians to clean our, our church and seminary building. Uh, just another way to support them. And I remember I was leaving for lunch with my team leader, uh, knowing that while I was gone is when they gave the opportunity for the cleaning ladies to come in. They had to clean all the time. Very dirty, very dusty there. Every car is diesel, so you know, you, you're mopping like five, six times a day. And I don't remember what it was, but my team leader said, oh, take that with you or, or, or put it in a drawer, put it away. It's like a watch or some money or something. And I knew that the people coming in were all Christians, and, I saw, and, and he had known them for decades. And I, I looked at him. I said, they're not going to steal that, are they? And I will never forget what he said, because these were Christians, remember. I said, they're not going to steal that, are they? And he goes, no, but you don't want to tempt them. No, they're Christian. There's no way they're going to steal that. But you don't want to tempt them. Temptation is dangerous. It can lead to sin. Or, even if you think you came out of the situation as a, as a victor, oh, I didn't give in to sin, it plants that seed, right? It plants that seed, and then next time the temptation is not as strong because you already thought, nah. The next thing you know, you're yelling or hitting or disobeying or surfing the Internet, whatever it may be. Temptation is dangerous. So what do we do? Third key to remember to avoid temptation, the command, verse 9, but resist him, firm in your faith. In light of the prowess and power of the devil, we are to resist him. Again, this is talking not just about the devil himself, but all that he represents and controls. To resist means to take a stand against. And in this context of what we're talking about, this can only be done in the realm of faith. This means trusting in God and in His promises, and you must have a firm stance on these things. You have to believe the Bible is true. You have to believe God is real. You have to believe He loves you. Firm there in the Greek is a word from which we actually get the word stereo. That's kind of weird. Well, it actually means solid, balanced. Right Now it's starting to make sense. You think it's stereo sound. Balanced at both ends. It's firm. It's got a good, a good base to it. Not B-A-S-S, if you think it's sound. Base, foundation. The only way that you will persevere and resist temptation is by standing on the promises of God, but doing so firmly. Well, I, I, what do you, it, how do I stand on it firmly? Believing it. Believing every word of it. Because after all, It is doubting God's word that leads us into temptation. 
thinking that getting what we want is better than denying ourselves for his glory. And I want to warn you, most of us probably don't actively think that, right? Oh, if I do this, I am doubting God's word. But the reality is you are. That's what you're practicing. You're practicing that abstinence is better, that giving is better, that sacrificing is better, that skipping that nap and going out and serving is better. You doubt all those things. Ephesians 6.13, Dennis read it for us earlier, Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. How have you done everything to stand firm and to resist? Taking up the full armor of God. That's just part of it. Would you turn with me to James chapter 4 and verse 7? James 4 and verse 7. It basically says the same thing, but I want you to see it. James 4, 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Say, why would you turn us? It says the same thing. Look at the verse before it. James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Sound familiar? We are still in the context of of humility and trusting the Lord. Would you turn back a few books to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And then in verse 5, he explains why we don't use the flesh. We use spiritual means. Because we're not destroying castles or physical things. We are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, the things that attack the Word of God. And we are taking, we as Christians, are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What is that? Well, in one, one sense, it is avoiding temptation, taking every thought, everything that you think about, captive. Is this biblical? Is it not? Does this attack of the Word of God? Does it not? So what are these things that we're destroying? Speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. They're satanic ideologies, theories. And, and you know, maybe I shouldn't have said satanic because you only think like these horrible things like, Death metal and the church of Satan. These are things that are, are integral to our society today. Theories, religious philosophies, social movements. All of these are these speculations that attack the Word of God and the way God designed the world to be. And remember, God Himself, God Himself pictures Satan as a ravenous lion. One of the greatest military leaders that ever lived, Napoleon Bonaparte, said this, If you build an army of a hundred lions and their leader is a dog, in any fight the lions will die like a dog. But if you build an army of a hundred dogs and their leader is a lion, all dogs will fight like a lion. God says Satan is a lion. And it doesn't matter what you think of these politicians, these liberal university professors, whatever it may be, they fight like lions because their leader is a lion. We must resist firmly. Is you have a choice. You have a choice to believe the Word of God as difficult as it may seem and as much as it may go against the grain of everything from birth that your mom and dad taught you, your grandparents taught you, your preschool, kindergarten, public school teachers taught you, and then you're introduced to the Bible. And I get sometimes it's hard because for 50 years you've been taught one thing 
You look at the news and they say, this is right, but God says, no, it isn't. We must stand firmly. You have a choice of what you need to believe. You can believe it even if you're not comfortable with it, right? I mean, we all believe that this is true about Satan, and I don't think that makes us comfortable. If you were to get in a physical game of tug-of-war with Satan, said, I'll break the rules. I'll take the, the, the form of a human being. Same size, height, body mass as you. As, and we'll do tug-of-war. And he's standing there on a concrete floor. What do you want to stand on? Firm foundation, stand firmly on concrete as well, or on loose gravel where he can just yank you away. Stand firmly on the Word of God. Believe it, not because you like to, not because it makes sense with your, your worldly perspective, but because it is the Word of God. Because everything else is going to go to temptation, right? And I've seen this. I've seen this in people. It's just w- one thing about how they're to raise children or one thing about finances that they don't agree with. I don't believe we need to give. And I don't think it's any surprise or I don't, I don't think it's, it's unrelated that always... Always, there's also tension in the marriage. There are, there are kids that are not being taught the Word of God. Christians, parents, right? Their, their activities are secular. Their relationships are all secular because it's all connected. Because if you don't stand on the Word of God firmly in all of it, those cracks are going to affect everything. Fine, stand on solid ground when you're playing that game of tug-of-war. I'll just put one piece of gravel under your heel you're still going to slip and lose. We need to be careful. That's the command. Stand firm. Fifthly and finally, the camaraderie. The end of verse 9. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Like a soldier whose morale is strengthened, knowing that all around him, these days all around the world, there is an entire army that is engaged in the same battle, the same difficulties, the same trials, the same enemy. So Peter's readers can be encouraged by the fact that there are other Christians who are being persecuted as well, and they are resisting the devil. In the same way, whether it's persecution or other temptations, we know that what we are going through is not unique to us. It feels like that sometimes, but it is not unique to us. I mean, how many of us have gone to, to the doctor and with some sort of pain with huge doubt that they're going to be able to diagnose it? Because I know I'm the only person in the history of modern medicine that has ever felt this. And they're like, oh, you need this. Boom, boom, boom. Take this medicine. Get out of here. Right? Done. Fixed. And I get it, especially in persecution and trials and difficulties. We think this is just me. No one gets it. And that may be true. No one in your immediate circle, no one in your family, no one of the church trying to comfort you, they may not get it. That may be true. But 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. There's nothing new under the sun. All the sins are the same. All the temptations are the same. They may take different forms, Right? The, the, the things that I, you know, the people who are considered youth and they're tempted by, right, it's online and on their phones, whereas, you know, if you're, you're 35 or older, when you were youth, your temptation was, you know, through TV and some of you black and white TVs, some of you just through, you know, books or scrolls or whatever. I'm just kidding. No one's that old. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. The, 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 the medium may change, but the sins are the same, right? What do you struggle with? Lust, anger, pride. No one's going to be like, I struggle with baduti. What is that? It's just this new thing. I mean, there's all, it's all the same. It's all here. It's all something that's been done before, right? And you know what the beauty of that verse is? And it, it provides, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it provides a great balance to what we're looking at. It goes on to, to say that God provides the way of escape. There's always a way out. There's always a way out. And you know what's silly? is we're like, there's no way out. There's no way out. Not only does this Bible disagree with you, sometimes the way out is this. Just walk away. But I get it's not as simple as that. When we say there's no way out, it's because the temptation is so strong and we want that sin so badly 
that we know we just need to turn off the computer, turn off the TV, walk away, hang up the phone, whatever it may be, tell ourselves to shut up, which, by the way, is a very good practice. I'm, telling, I'm serious. Your mind goes down that path, but what, blah, 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 start building up that anger, shut up. Tell yourself to shut up. It's so simple, but it's when we get so drawn in that we're like, I, can't, I have to do it. I have to do it. This idea of this camaraderie of others who have also faced or are facing the same challenges is seen in the beginning of Hebrews 12. As you know, Hebrews 11 is this list of, of, of different heroes of faith that have gone before us, right? All these Old Testament uh, saints and heroes that you've read of. And it says in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean? He did it too. There's other people who have done it. Moses did it. Abraham did it. Noah did it. They all did it. And so the idea is they went through difficult times. You can do it too. They put off their sin and they ran the race. They're with God now and they're like, you've probably heard sermons that say this. They're like, they're cheering us on. They're not really, but they're kind of like, the idea is they're cheering us on, Right? This is why we read history, to not repeat mistakes. This is why we study history in school, right? So there won't be another Hitler. And you know what's even better than what, what even better than, than Hebrews in what Peter says? He says there are people going through it right now. Be encouraged. There are people who are being successful right now. Not these people in the Old Testament that are dead. People right now who have the same financial difficulties as you, who are also married to an unbeliever, who also have bills to pay, the rat race to to run, they're doing it. You can do it too. And so, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Four keys to remember to avoid temptation, the character, the caution, the command, and the camaraderie. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us such a hatred of sin and such a passion for your glory that we would avoid temptation. In Jesus' name, amen.